Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. And this is episode 28, Beat the Heat, Understanding Heat Waves and Their Impacts. In this episode, we have quite the hot topic to discuss. We will be talking about the nuances to do with defining a heat wave, how heat warnings are declared in Canada, and we'll also be exploring the incredible complexity that comes with heat waves and why the current approach to their management might be missing the mark. So to this end, we'll be speaking with meteorologist Melissa McDonald for a chat about the weather, as well as reviewing a landmark article and a few hot tips. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. So Grayson, how would you define a heat wave? Oh man, I don't know. Uh, when it's hot outside for a long time? <laughs> well, uh, there are some more technical definitions, but you are correct. Yeah. Um, so I think we can just end the episode right there. <laughs> um, actually, <laughs> actually uh, as you know, heat-related disasters are uh, among the most complicated to understand, the most complicated to, to manage, and in many ways are uh, a great example of true complexity in action. Um, they involve huge public health risks and uh, are really interesting for emergency managers to uh, to study. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this really came to the fore in the summer of 2018. Uh, from Vancouver to the Maritimes, there really weren't many places that escaped the heat. Perhaps most notably, however, uh, in southern Ontario and Quebec, there were some of the highest temperatures of all time recorded in July of 2018 with some deadly outcomes. Um, for example, emergency services in all locations uh, were overwhelmed. And, and once all was said and done, in Quebec, at least 74 fatalities were attributed to that specific heat event. So, you know, this is a, a deadly disaster. And sometimes it doesn't get the attention it needs. That's right. Uh, I think one of the most compelling aspects of these disasters and why they're so interesting uh, to study from a um, disasterology standpoint is that they really highlight the underlying social vulnerabilities and uh, the many different uh, tightly coupled factors that are in play when you have a disaster like this that expands quickly and has multiple cascading failures. One of my favorite disaster quotes actually has to do with heat waves, and it comes from a book by Eric Kleinberg. And he says, uh, when he's describing the great Chicago uh, heat wave, he said that the factors involved in a heat wave are silent and invisible killers of silenced and invisible people. And I think that's a really telling quote. And if you can understand the many roles of social vulnerability in terms of heat waves and heat disasters, I think that is knowledge that will help you in any disaster response. So with heat waves very much on the forefront of Canadian disaster news and another hot summer on the way, uh, we thought we'd start off the discussion around heat waves by chatting about the weather with meteorologist Melissa McDonald. Uh, but before we begin... Acronym analysis. Well, there aren't too many for this episode, but one of them is a UHI or a urban heat island. The next one is HARS, H-A-R-S. Uh, it stands for Heat Alert and Response Systems, and that's from uh, Health Canada. So without any further ado, uh, I give you the interview with Melissa McDonald, recorded on October of 2018. Um, hello, my name is Melissa McDonald. I am a program meteorologist that works with the Health and Air Quality Program under the Meteorological Services of Canada. And my main role is to work with our provincial and territorial partners, and I also lead our heat um, warning program. 
Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us for this epic podcast episode on heat waves. Um, before we get started, how did you get into the role that you're in now? Um, well, I started off working with Environment and Climate Change Canada um, as a trainee meteorologist, so an operational meteorologist. Um, I worked uh, a bit in aviation meteorology initially in Montreal and then came back to um, located in Nova Scotia and worked here um, in public uh, forecasting for a few years before um, happening to come across the, the opportunity to work uh, and, as, in an assignment under what was called the heat signature project at the time, um, looking at different ways to work uh, in, in, and look into heat and warnings and how things are working across the globe um, and it, it sort of all just fell into place from there to move into the health and air quality program and, and work on uh, many aspects that are related to meteorology, how meteorology and health do relate to each other. Wow, so lots of experience. For those who maybe haven't looked into it extensively, what is a heat wave actually and how is it defined in Canada? Right. So um, the very traditional definition of a heat wave, and there is variations of this, of course, across the globe, um, tends to be three days of reaching uh, 30 degrees Celsius or a similar temperature, um, consecutive days of reaching that temperature. Um, it 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 is, is often sometimes listed as 33 degrees Celsius, but in Canada, the traditional idea was always about 30 degrees Celsius. Are there any other qualifications around declaring a heat wave? Um, well, th th there is various definitions and various other aspects that could be brought into it. I mean, um, it depends on literature and research. Um, there's been recent guidance from the World Health Organization, World Meteorological Organization, and that was um, uh, out as of 2015 that suggested that um, heat warning systems be based on the 95th to 99th percentile of temperature. Um, of summer temperatures, and and so there is that aspect that's sort of quite become a lot more popular recently, and some of the basis for um, adjustments that Environment and Climate Change Canada have made to their heat warning program recently. Um, but there also is other aspects. I mean, in the southern U.S., um, heat waves are considered to have to reach a, a certain level on the heat index, which would usually see temperatures in areas such as Texas reach or Phoenix reaching up to or the 40, um, 40 Celsius mark in some cases. So um, there is such a variation in temperature across the globe, it's hard to define what a heat wave is in any one location. And it becomes even more difficult in areas that are cooler um, because the climatization of the public becomes a factor in how it, the heat will affect them. Is there any consideration about what the, the temperature goes down to at night when defining a heat wave? Um, so um, recently, with the development that, and, and recent research um, that has been done um, in Environment and Climate Change Canada with our heat warning program, we have taken into account um, the overnight low temperature as well, um, because the idea would be that you were not seeing relief from heat overnight. And so that is definitely taken into account um, for some locations, and that's currently the way that we are moving forward with uh, um, in Canada. I know that um, it really does depend on the location, um, but under the traditional sense of heat wave, not the case. And I think that this is a really important move forward because it definitely helps to um, give more um, 
protection to those in the most extreme heat events and also it is adding a focus of thinking about um, urban conditions like urban heat islands and areas that would sort of hold that heat in a lot more at night, especially when the temperatures are kept up overnight. Can you tell us a little bit about that urban heat island effect? Um, yes, yeah, so urban heat island effect uh, occurs in their really populated, densely populated areas, usually with a lot less green space available and a lot more concrete and um, building materials that will store the heat. And so what happens during the day is that the sun and the hot temperatures during a heat event um, will increase the temperature in the area and throughout the city. And so that overnight, all those sources that's um, held in the heat during the day are able to then radiate that heat at night, and it keeps the city and oftentimes the urban area of a, of a large region a lot warmer than the um, more rural areas outside, um, sometimes in up to as much as even 10 degrees warmer overnight when the overnight low would occur outside of the urban area. Interesting. Are there any other weather-related effects or any other considerations from the meteorologist's point of view? Yeah, so um, part of uh, other considerations do is a traditional heat wave. I talked about um, having a three-day heat event. Well, there's also that consideration that the duration of the heat is a really important factor. So the longer the heat event, um, then there tends to be more health effects in the public, of course. Um, And and just uh, more consistent time being kept in those temperatures. I think we all know that when we've um, been placed in areas where we're, or at times when there is more heat than expected for many consecutive days. Um, there also can be um, other considerations such as uh, whether or not how humid it is or not humid. Um, so in eastern Canada or from about Manitoba and east, there tends to be a lot more humidity in our temperatures and weather patterns. Um, A lot of that's brought up from the south. Um, However, in the east or west, there tends to be a a lot less uh, humidity and therefore it's not reflected in something such as the humidex. Uh, We do use the humidex in Canada and it it is a reflection of the the combination of temperature and humidity. It just feels like temperature. So it's not actually the recorded temperature or air temperature, but it's what the human body is thought to feel, have felt like based on studies done quite a while ago. And um, so using that gives us a better idea of the humidity in the air. But using a minimum temperature in a heat warning criteria as well helps to give you a, a guideline of how humid it is as well. Because the warmer or the more humid it is, the lower, the, the higher the temperature overnight will stay. So that's a really important factor in looking at heat warnings. You mentioned a couple of times these new heat wave criteria. What was the impetus for developing a new heat wave criteria and what sort of impact has it had on the way that you uh, declare heat warnings? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, so um, we were really brought to the table in a really roundabout way. Um, we were had a partnership with Health Canada um, through our Air Quality Health Index program. And we also were working with Health Canada when they started the development of their heat alert response systems, HARS program, and they had done some pilot um, studies of the HARS system in a few cities across the country. We worked closely with them and in the development of this heat signature project I had worked on uh, quite a while back. And at the same time as all this happening, we were aware of the different events that had happened across the country, such as Europe um, 
in the 2000s and then Chicago and then even close to home 2009 um, in BC we had seen um, heat related mortality from an event and then of course even closer to home even this past summer but with all that knowledge and also the newfound interest in, in the public and the World Health Organization in heat and health we also became talking started talking with the province of Ontario through the public health units upcoming to the Pan Am Games, and they were interested in making sure that they harmonized the heat warning systems or heat warnings they were using in the footprint area of where the Pan Am Games was going to occur to make sure that they were providing the appropriate information to the public and all the spectators they would be seeing at the Pan Am Games because it's quite an influx of population. Many people don't realize that it's a larger event than even the Olympics, the amount of people that come to it. And so through that, that sort of started, really got the ball rolling to discuss with the province of Ontario what needed to be done to make sure the public health uh, was working with the province, who was working also with the federal government, and that everybody was working together. And it was a very big initiative, which really sort of put the momentum behind us to really look at heat warning criteria, um, do heat health analysis with Health Canada or in the case of Ontario with Public Health Ontario as well, um, and just really sort of check in and start to make sure that we were having health evidence-based heat warnings, um, that we're providing information that we knew was important and would protect health as compared to just the climatological criteria, which previously was really what the Humidex was being set at one value right across the country, probably appropriate for Ontario, but not necessarily for all of the country. And this is a really important aspect because each of the public health units in the greater Toronto area were also not necessarily doing the same thing when it came to a heat warning, and they wanted to really be coming together and harmonize the entire system. So in a way, it was the Pan Am Games that uh, was the impetus for the modernization of this classification of, of heat waves? I, I don't know if I would say definitely yeah. the Pan Am Games alone yeah. because I know Health Canada really got the ball rolling and I think it was just really an entire situation where we had so many things come together at once and the Pan Am Games really pushed it to happen in Ontario first. Um, but I shouldn't say that completely because previous to even the work that was done in Ontario in 2012, after a study completed by the British Columbia Centre for Disease Control, um, there was new heat warning criteria developed for the lower mainland of BC that was health-based, but that was done solely through the province, and it was a provincial endeavor towards trying to protect the public and prevent something such as what had happened in 2009 um, with the heat event in Vancouver. And I say all that, and I would like to also point out that the provincial government in Quebec has developed a very robust heat alert response system um, that operates under the province, and it is really quite a star in terms of heat alert response system. So there's various pockets still that we're already working on that type of information um, before even Environment and Climate Change Canada really got involved. So the new criteria is really a joining of the, the health and meteorological effects of, of heat. Is that fair to say? Yes, definitely. That's exactly how I would describe it. So now that we've decided what a heat wave is and the different criteria that are used to determine when a heat wave is occurring, what is the flow of information to uh, inform the public and get a heat warning issued? Yes, so um, we we do issue our heat warnings publicly, which will allow for banners on our website and 
Um, in many cases, the media does pick up on this information and circulate it further. We, are, we have partnership with the, the Weather Network so that all environment climate change warnings are publicized within the Weather Network as well. Um, but in order to make sure that we're keeping our provincial and territorial partners and public health um, in the loop and um, knowing what's happening, we also are issuing with the, the development and modernization of the heat warning system and criteria, we started issuing early notification, which we do um, via either a subscription service or an email distribution list um, to all of our partners within public health that have been um, brought to our attention by the province or within the public health authorities. And that piece of information is giving the um, all of those folks uh, update and heads up notification of an expected heat event that might be coming within two to three days. And that information would detail the region that, that we expect to have a heat warning and the longevity of it and the severity and also the confidence and whether or not we expect that's going to happen. Because up to three to four days out, it's still sometimes hard to be very confident in whether or not heat warning criteria would definitely be met. <clears throat> and this gives all of our partners the ability to spin up or be prepared for any type of action that they might have in place or anything they would like to take care of, especially in consideration of upcoming events or outdoor activities. And just making sure that anybody else they feel should be notified if this might be happening, they can then follow up by circulating this information further. In some of our provinces and territories, they're also taking it upon themselves that when we issue a heat warning and they are notified of that heat warning happening, they are also issuing sometimes press releases to the public to notify them to take precaution or updating their own websites to um, point to the fact that they're now in a heat warning level and offering further information in terms of how to protect uh, themselves, the public to protect themselves during the event. But this really varies right across the country. The early notification piece is something that is definitely occurring in any of the provinces where we've uh, set up and developed the new criteria at this point in time, and territories as well. Uh, so it's an open communication with also the ability for them to reach out to us through either a warning preparedness meteorologist or the actual um, forecast office to have more information about the event that is occurring or upcoming as well. From the meteorological point of view, what lesser known hazards of heat waves occur? What are some of the complications uh, that can arise from these extreme heat events? Wow. Well, I, I will state that I am definitely not a health expert when it comes to health effects that would be related to this. But then outside of even just our traditional health effects that we're aware of, um, there can be even more um, strain on our systems, such as um, our, any hydroelectric electric because of the demand for air conditioning. I'm not as familiar with all the details, but in some cases, um, humidity can play quite a role in how um, hydroelectric operates as well. Um, I would say, too, that we always have to consider that heat always comes with, our severe, with severe weather, so there's always that caution as well. Um, and, and everybody loves a shower that starts on a really hot day, but usually um, for many parts of the country, especially in out west and in the prairies, we do tend to see an awful lot of uh, um, severe thunderstorms um, in the wake of uh, extreme temperatures and heat waves as well. That's interesting that, uh, you know, we focus so much on the health effects, but the systems effects are there as well. You mentioned the, the hydroelectric and the increased strain on 
regular systems and that's you know a defining characteristic of a disaster in in most cases so looking to the future what sort of trends or uh, differences can we expect in in coming years as it applies to extreme heat events um well i i mean we're all aware that climate change is happening um in many cases that does mean that we may see more extreme heat events um but it's very hard to predict or foresee um, how often, in many cases, that may happen. I mean, of course, we're always working with our any our climate groups and uh, to try and look at how often events will happen in the future. We expect that we will have to, as time moves on, adjust heat warning criteria as things do get warmer and the population becomes more um, more acclimatized to warmer temperatures. But we also shouldn't expect to always see warm years either. We can see cool years as well. Um, and I find that often people, uh, the cool years are some of the worst uh, for heat because if you have a cool summer, you're not as acclimatized to warmer temperatures. And when a heat event does occur, it can be a lot more difficult on uh, on any individual. Um, so that's always something that people won't, won't necessarily take into account as moved on. But I think that we also may see more late season events and early season events. Uh, you know, last year we did see a heat warning in Ontario at the in September. And uh, there's always something to consider. And I know that we're all aware of uh, the significant heat event that did occur at the beginning of July in southern Quebec and southern Ontario and heard a lot about in the media the effects uh, that did occur in southern Quebec. I don't have a lot of details on that, but I know that that's an example of events that we may see more of in the future, but it's really hard to say, and I, I wouldn't want to speak definitively to how often or how much. How can people stay connected to heat warnings in, in their areas and their communities? Um, well, I, I do recommend um making sure that um, you check your local weather conditions. Uh, that doesn't necessarily have to be through Environment Climate Change Canada, but we do provide a very detailed warning map page right on our main site, So, and that's weather.gc.ca. Uh, but also keeping in tune with your public health and what your regional area is suggesting that you should do and take precautions. Um, it's not just heat to be concerned about when it comes to health, it's air quality. And UV is also an important aspect, so make sure that you're protecting yourself from, from the UV rays and that um, to look into and be sure if you have any issues with air quality to check the air quality health index as well. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us for this epic podcast. I hope to have you back again at some point, and thank you so much for the chat. Oh, thank you very much. I had a great time. It was nice speaking with you. Well, great. Now that's a great uh, overview of, uh, of heat waves and especially some of the systems that exist in Canada. And I think the important terminology that we all need to know um, in regards to these events. Mm -hmm. I was especially happy to see that change in the classification system to include the vulnerability part of it, the, the health impacts. Um, I think that's a huge step forward. And, you know, I was surprised by how technical the description of a heat event was being hot during the day is really only one part of it. Yeah, I mean the the interesting thing about these disasters, we keep saying the word complex, but it's uh, 
really what makes what makes them so interesting to understand as a phenomenon is that the risks and both the public health interventions and the emergency management responses are often counterintuitive. And it can seem like a very straightforward event. I mean, it gets hot outside, we probably need to get people to cooler temperatures and you know, what else is there? But when you actually dig your teeth into heat waves, and this is something for all the disaster nerds out there, the epidemiology is so rich. And we know the effects are long lasting. Um, these are huge events that uh, are very much underrepresented, I, I think, in the disaster literature. Um, so we're gonna talk about some of them in, in a moment. But uh, I mean, one of the things that jumps out at me is the uh, study of fatalities. And I mean, we have many errors and, and issues with how the disaster data is recorded and how deaths are recorded in different jurisdictions. But uh, uniformly, we can look at a bunch of studies and it shows us that the all-cause mortality um, after heat waves remains elevated for over a year um, and uh, after a community and, and individuals have been impacted by major heat waves. So um, a big you know, big, uh, robust amount of uh, epidemiological data that we can go through. Yeah, and to talk a little bit more about the complexities, I, I made a list just kind of off the top of my head and from sort of the uh, literature that we've been reviewing for this episode, and, and it's just a, a hint, a, a look into some of the complexities that exist. Um, there is a strong relationship between heat and health, and that's the most obvious one. Vulnerable populations with pre-existing health conditions are devastated by heat waves. There's also a, a strong connection between heat and air pollution, which can lead to a whole another uh, realm of, of heat-related impacts. Yeah, things like the ground ozone, for example, if that's elevated, that can uh, really change the, uh, you know, the, the area uh, within a built environment that's impacted. That's right. The, the higher the heat, the higher the pollution. And that kind of links into some relationships between heat and behavior. You know, if it's hot outside, People want to be outside and they go outside and it's elevated pollution, elevated risk. So there's that behavioral element as well. Um, some other areas of complexity, it, you know, we talked about the heat and the other weather that comes afterwards. It's not just heat in isolation. You got to be prepping for the severe weather that follows. Uh, heat and infrastructure. Josh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so we don't necessarily think of critical infrastructure failure when you think of, of heat waves. You normally think of the you know the health impacts on vulnerable populations, but uh, critical infrastructure failure again is a, a cascading component. So um, when you look at the events in Europe that happened in two thousand three, uh, they had um, a massive uh, increased demand on their power grids. They had uh, brownouts and, and issues with uh, delivery of, of uh, electricity. Their hydro facilities, which of course require water, were down about 19% in their generating ability when the demand was highest. And they even had some rivers that almost dried up. Um, and likewise, nuclear power, which you think maybe wouldn't be vulnerable, it requires a lot of uh, water as well. And uh, there's a 4% degree uh, decrease nationally in their nuclear power uh, output in France. So um, um, critical infrastructure is uh, an important consideration. Um, crops were another one. Uh, we had uh, areas with, you know, um, full crop failures for entire uh, seasons. Mm -hmm. That relationship between heat and, and drought and water availability, it's, it's just connected to literally everything. Mm -hmm. And with all these vulnerabilities and, and all these fatalities, why is it that we don't have more attention paid to, to heat waves as a disaster? 
Well, it's a good point. I mean, I think part of it is when we talk about dread risk, the dread risk is rather low for a heat wave. Uh, I mean, it doesn't seem like a very scary thing to most people. I think academically, people probably know that they're they're bad and that uh, you know it affects elderly people. But uh, compare it to you know our last uh, our episode recently on on radiation. You know that's got a huge dread risk, and people make movies about uh, radioactive explosions and emergencies. Um, there's not too many movies made about heat waves. Uh, you know they don't have that same kind of compelling feature. <laughs> yeah. to which means it's hard to mobilize volunteers, it's hard to get donations, and it's hard to um, have people listen and take seriously uh, public education messaging. Uh, one of the studies that we'll review in Journal Club um, talks about uh, the fact that most people who were vulnerable to heat waves and had the most risk factors um, didn't think they were vulnerable. And so there's a, a big kind of uh, knowledge gap in terms of educating people about the risks. They're very insidious events. Yeah, and I can't help but wonder if that lack of dread risk kind of rolls into some of the problems that we see with the response to heat waves. So a lot of current plans uh, very intuitively say, okay, a heat wave's going on, let's set up some cooling centers. Let's extend the the hours of the local pool and and areas that actually have air conditioning, and people can show up and and cool down intermittently. That's great and all, uh, but it's a perfect example of why it's so important to perform this vulnerability analysis before pitching a plan. Uh, the simple fact that you need to be able to walk to get to a cooling center shows how useless that plan really is for the people most impacted by heat waves. Uh, you know, all these things that you need to be able to do to get there, uh, understand the warning, read the reference material, it, like transport yourself there, sustain yourself while you're there. That's impossible unless you could take care of yourself to start with. So it, I don't really know what that plan was, uh, you know, focused on in terms of uh, a vulnerability. This really is a public health emergency, and it, it needs to be addressed as such. You're right. And like any public health um, issue, it's important to understand the risk factors, both at the individual level as well as the population level. So when you think about risk factors for heat waves, uh, the people you should be most concerned about are uh, the elderly and uh, people that have um, chronic diseases, especially things that impair their mobility, but actually uh, many diseases that aren't even intuitive uh, are become relevant with uh, with heat waves. Diabetes, for example, um, there's studies showing that uh, diabetics have a dramatic increase in their risk of heart attack uh, following heat waves, uh, as well as patients who are on multiple medications, or what we call polypharmacy patients. Um, there's issues with the body's natural thermoregulatory um, abilities. So uh, these patients are also more at risk and not necessarily just the elderly. At the population level, um, we mentioned about people being isolated, but really the single biggest risk factor is low SES or socioeconomic status. Um, and then certainly that gets compounded with critical infrastructure uh, disruptions. So if people um, are you know have limited access to air conditioning, there's a lot of myths out there as well. So some people think that fans are effective at cooling, and they're they're not. And so that's a, an important thing um, for people that don't have access to air conditioning. And then there's some risk factors that are interesting in that they're protective. So uh, people that are married, uh, for example, are protective, and there's certain uh, genetic risk factors that can be protective too in terms of uh, what your critical heat threshold is. So some people handle heat better than others, um, either uh, 
they can either be a protective or a, a, a risk. Um, and all of these things kind of coalesce to make really interesting uh, distributions in terms of what your risk profile is for, for populations and individuals. You would think intuitively that this sort of complicated kind of layered data would help, um, you know, would be displayed well with GIS. And in many ways, uh, heat maps can be very helpful, but even that can be uh, sometimes misleading. There's the notion that when you look at a heat map uh, for a, a city, that the hottest areas are going to naturally be the areas most affected. And that's maybe where you want to focus your door knocking campaigns and focus your, your resources. Um, but because of all these underlying social complexities, often those are the most built-up environments and often more affluent areas, and uh, they have lower um, uh, latent uh, cooling at night, so they can actually cool off a bit more, and it's not necessarily where you're going to have the highest impact. So you really need to factor in these social risk factors as well. Yeah, that, that sort of cognitive disconnect between where the risk is and where the impact is felt uh, can be hard to wrap your head around, and it's really important to get some evidence to, to actually make properly informed decisions. Uh, so speaking of evidence, what is our Journal Club article for today? Yeah, so this is a great article by the CDC, which um, is really targeted uh, towards emergency managers. It's a great uh, knowledge translation article. They took 50 high-quality peer-reviewed studies. They read them for you and summarized them in a beautiful chart where it just has point form what the single big takeaway is from each uh, of those articles. So uh, you can save yourself a lot of reading, and it's a nice uh, uh, systematic review of sorts uh, going through the heat wave literature in terms of how to operationalize a response. The title of the article is The Use of Cooling Centers to Prevent Heat-Related Illness, a Summary of Evidence and Strategies for Implementation. Uh, we will send out a tweet with the link to the CDC website. But some pearls from the article include the use of heat vulnerability index, and that's a, a measure of both um, environmental and social risk factors. So as I was just talking about with GIS, it's a way to actually put some numbers behind the data and make sure that you're, you're uh, putting your resources in the right place based on what areas are going to be the most impacted. Um, so I'd really recommend this article. I, I, a lot of the research we did for this episode came from this article, and I think uh, it's a must-read. Um, similarly, another must-read I'm going to plug, I'm going to go for a twofer this month, um, uh, this episode. And this is a book by Eric Kleinberg, whose quote I opened with at the beginning. It's called Heat Wave, A Social Autopsy of Disaster in Chicago. And this is... Uh, a book that comes up very frequently in, in disaster um, education programs, and I'm sure a lot of people have read some excerpts from it uh, uh, through various training. But if you have a chance, you should read the book cover to cover. It's great. Talks about social risk factors, talks about the delayed response in the Chicago uh, case study, and uh, really the importance of using existing networks. And uh, that's probably the, one of the biggest takeaways is how to leverage the networks and natural supports that already exist, opposed to trying to create on the fly, uh, you know, spontaneous uh, networks in terms of, you know, new uh, cooling teams and things like that. So uh, great read. And uh, I think everybody should uh, flip through both of those publications. Uh, up next, we have the tool of the trade. So today's tool of the trade is the HARS, that heat alert and response system to protect health. It is by Health Canada, and it's the, the best practices guidebook. 
This is an amazing resource and it's a, it's a must have for any emergency manager. It's also got a lot of useful information in there for the general public around preparing yourself for a heat event. Uh, the things that really stood out for me for this particular tool was the risk communication pieces in it. So there's this great graph that uh, that they start off the the guidebook with that shows the relationship between mortalities and temperature over time and it, it really made it click for me the exact moment when people start to die in heat waves and it's right around that 30 degrees celsius i came away from looking at this infographic with the impression that humans just can't really survive over 30 degrees <laughs> celsius so it, it really hit home um, and a lot of the graphics in here are would be useful for any sort of information campaign yeah. And I think that's one of the real strengths of this tool is it's very focused on public communication. So lots of very specific strategies to get the message out, uh, building the, the triggers within any sort of alerting system that you might have in your municipality or organization. Um, the other really big strength of this uh, were some of the response ideas. Now, I have to say it was a little bit light on response um you know it, it jumped to the cooling centers quite quickly but some of the additional response recommendations in there that i really liked were things like establishing a buddy system or, or a neighborhood watch um, strategy for some of the vulnerable populations within your community uh, and then the one i liked best actually was a response recommendation around providing financial assistance for utility bills during heat waves mm -hmm. and removing that socioeconomic status barrier for people who might not turn on their air conditioner or might not buy one because they know they can't afford to pay that increased cost. Now, I think the main value of this uh, beyond maybe that that public communication piece is the vulnerability assessment. We have talked a lot about uh, vulnerabilities that exist during heat waves, or I should say get uncovered during heat waves. Uh, and there is a an amazing structure to this vulnerability assessment, along with lots and lots of uh, questionnaires and checklists and things. I'm just going to go over the basic approach. Uh, and it starts off with initiate the assessment, um, describing the current vulnerability. And this would take quite a long time. And this is where all the checklists come in and, and characterizing the vulnerabilities and looking into the uh, different populations that are in your community. So making it specific to your area, uh, assessing the future risks, and this has a lot to do with uh, climate change and the projected temperatures, um, identify adaptation options, examine measures in other sectors, so what are people doing well right now, and then the thing that I like best about this and that doesn't really show up in a lot of these frameworks is develop performance protocols. You know, we don't often go back and evaluate the effectiveness of a lot of these initiatives. So uh, a really great structure and just a lot of supporting material for this. I, I think this is something that you could take and uh, almost verbatim use in, in any community and get some really interesting results on vulnerabilities that exist that would be applicable to any disaster scenario. So once again, that's the, that's the HARS and that's by Health Canada. I love it. One of my favorite um, heat wave vulnerability factoids is that uh, obviously heat rises. So intuitively, you would think that the top floors of buildings would be the most uh, vulnerable. And that's 
generally true unless the building doesn't have an elevator because uh, buildings without elevators, the top floor is actually the most safe place in the sense that people who can actually get up and down the stairs and if they're able to get up and down the stairs are generally very fit and well. So again, that just... Is a, sh- that is a perfect way to describe <laughs> actual vulnerability versus perceived vulnerability. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, the other uh, interesting article I stumbled across was talking about uh, how human cognitive performance uh, dramatically decreases in the heat. So if your EOC doesn't have an air conditioner, you want to make sure that you're, you're, you're comfortable. Uh, this, this one study looked at university students um, and compared uh, one dorm uh, that had air conditioning with a dorm that didn't, and universally the test scores were lower uh, from all the students who came from the uh, without <laughs> dorm. So make sure your EOC is well supplied. So there you go. Top tips and tricks to beat the heat. Just before we go, I'd like to take a moment to mention the Alberta Podcast Network, which Epic Podcast is a proud member of. The Alberta Podcast Network is a community of talented and creative podcasters who work tirelessly to bring you great content, and the network really helps to support them in doing just that. You should absolutely check them out at albertapodcastnetwork.com. We should also mention that the Alberta Podcast Network is powered by ATB. And it turns out ATP does their part to beat the heat and keep the ice from melting. ATP is a proud sponsor of hockey across Alberta. From grassroots to pro, ATP helps teams across the provinces and the countless volunteers that make community hockey possible. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Melissa McDonald for sharing her time and experience with us on the topic of heat emergencies. If you'd like to find out more or get in touch, you can email us at team at epicpodcast.ca, send us a tweet to username epic underscore underscore podcast, or visit our website at www.epicpodcast.ca. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at the username epic underscore underscore podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.